Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. This week I spoke with Julia Cameron. Julia is a teacher, author, artist, poet, playwright, novelist, filmmaker, composer and journalist. She is best known for that modern classic, The Artist's Way. Any of you that are interested in creativity or even just your discovering your kind of deeper psychic self should get the artist's way and take out the legendary exercises in it, which Julia and I discuss in this podcast. She's written many other non-fiction works, short stories, essays, as well as novels, plays, musicals and screenplays, including The Prosperous Heart, Faith and Will. It's never too late to begin again. She also wrote for The Washington Post and Rolling Stone and has taught the Smithsonian, Esalen, the Amiga Institute for Holistic Studies, and the New York Open Center. She continues to teach regularly around the world and she was a wonderful woman. Make sure to, and we'll, I'll tell you about a bit more in a minute. Sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com. You'll get all sorts of little videos and insights and opportunities to belong to some sort of community of locked in loners and imprisoned families and people wondering about the nature of class and the impact of class on a lockdown, the access that certain people have to space and other people's other people don't have. If you want to chat to me, uh, I'm at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, at Rusty at Russell Brand on Insta, TikTok, LinkedIn, all that. If you want to ask me about this, uh, use the hashtag under the skin. But the last episode was of course with Joe Wicks. What a fantastic episode it was. What a joy to spend time with that beautiful open-hearted, loving and brilliant young man. Uh, XXTabsXX says, I loved listening to this. Hearing you both talking about your daughters and your fears for their futures was something I really identified with and I wanted to cry so many times for this podcast. Beautiful, thank you. Adam Peacock, sounds like Russell is interviewing himself. Yeah, I felt like that. I felt like I was interviewing myself in a hall of pants and mirrors. That guy said, what? What a legend, absolutely selfless. The NHS is such a gift and we have to help in any way possible. In a way though, the NHS is not a gift, but is a realization of our collective, well, sort of tax and our collective will and our collective benevolence. It is a gift, I'm not saying don't be grateful, but also remember it's not like a present from the government. Andrew Barrett, my kid loves this guy. The wife likes him too. I think that's for different reasons though. Both reasons involve physical exertion. Andrew, you've spotted one of Joe Wicks's many assets his physical beauty but now it's time for julia cameron trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes that's 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 exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we are told and welcome to russell brand under the skin Julia Cameron, I've wanted to speak to you for such a long time. Thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. You're very welcome. Who's that handsome man drifting about in the background? The handsome man drifting about is my friend Nick Kapustinsky, who is doing all of the technical support, uh, as well as drinking a cup of coffee and telling me it will be fine. Well, what better way to get through your day than drinking coffee and being comforted by a, a handsome man? Yes. Yes, I have two of you now. <laughs> um, you're making me blush. Now, like, uh, it's so lovely to talk to you because you're an incredibly influential and important figure in the world of recovery and the world of creativity. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We're, of course, speaking in the midst of this uh, uh, sort of global lockdown, this incredible pandemic. How, how have you been applying your program and your work in this peculiar time? Where are you? How are you? 
Well, I live atop a mountain in Santa Fe. Wow. Uh, it's a little bit isolated to begin with. Uh, and I have been doing uh, Zoom, uh, which has been a godsend. Uh, and I can see the faces of my familiars. Uh, and I love that. Uh, and I'm getting up in the morning and writing my morning pages faithfully. Wow. Uh, they are very helpful, uh, even though they weren't earmarked for pandemic use only. <laughs> so you're still doing the same things that you would typically do. You're still using, because uh, my understanding, and I think it's sort of understood, that you're, are you in recovery from from substance misuse or alcohol misuse or how what is your own journey of recovery okay so it's sort of all of the above i'm 72 years old now i got sober when i was 29 oh my god and i got sober uh from an alcohol and cocaine habit uh and uh i have a friend who says to me be graphic and grateful. So to be graphic, I would say my cocaine habit gave me a, a hole across the center of my nose. Uh, and I didn't realize that I was literally drilling a hole through my psyche. Uh, mm. And my alcohol was such that I kept a bottle next to the bed and I would reach over when I woke up and drink myself back to sleep. Uh, and then in the morning, I would get up and drink three shots of scotch. And then I would call the liquor store and say, could you please bring me over some Stolichnaya, some Jose Cuervo, uh, some scotch. Uh, and with pity in their voice and their arms, they would bring in a load of alcohol. Uh, and I would begin to drink around the day hoping to be able to write before I got too drunk. So that's my story. That was graphic. Um, how, how, how the, the hole in the nose and the early morning drinking? So how, what happened to you? How did, how did that stop? Well, I, I found myself uh, calling a girlfriend uh, and saying, Dear God, what am I going to do? Uh, and I thought that I was talking about my painful divorce. And my girlfriend had an alcoholic father. So she detected the slur in my voice. And she said to me, I think you need to talk to another alcoholic. Mm. And, and I said, Claudia, you don't think I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> and she said, well, and she just sort of let it hang. Just well. Just well. And that was all the diagnosis I needed. <laughs> and then so, and then what happened then? So I spoke to another alcoholic uh, and she spoke to another alcoholic. Uh, and a man who was a gay, red-haired New York theater chorus boy came over to my house and told me his story. Uh, and I listened to his story and I thought, my God, he drank just like I did and he seems happy. 
and I thought, happy, that's an elusive uh, thing to chase. Uh, and I thought, I think I'll try. So I did. Wow. Wow, and this was when you were 29. Yes, and when I turned 30, which was a month later, uh, I had uh, my friends threw me a party, uh, and they said, uh, who would you like to invite? And I said, well, I'll drink, I'll invite my drinking and using friends, and I'll invite my new sober acquaintances. And so they stood staring at each other, you know, sort of books versus baggies of cocaine. Uh, and that was how I got sober. Oh, it's like the sharks versus the jets, the old life and the new life. Julia, yes. when did you, how did you manage to conceptualize and relay that the principles that got you clean and sober had an innate connection to creativity psyche and spirit how did you understand that and how what was the process of creating the artist way which i must say is like a you know like everyone i know that's sort of into creativity knows about the artist way or has done the artist way i first heard of it from my friend simon amstel when he was telling me that he was taking himself on artist dates you know where you you know you're idea that you should take yourself out on a creative excursion and I thought man that sounds messed up you know and I then eventually you know I got the book and I did it myself and I remember going to like sort of the first one I did was a, a sort of a monastery somewhere in the south of France where I was when I was reading your book for the first time and thinking wow wow because it made me confront a lot I actually remember feeling a bit lonely and sad at points on that date but it was nonetheless a sort of a an, an, an educational experience how did you um how did you translate these 12-step principles into this um a phenomenal manual manual for creativity well i think what i wanted to do was help my friends i had friends who were blocked uh, and I came from a big family, and in my family, when you learned something, you would turn around and teach it to a sibling. So I had uh, an experience uh, with a screenwriter friend of mine who said, try and let the higher power write through you. And I said, well, what if he doesn't want to? <laughs> and he said, well, just try. So I started trying to listen uh, and hear what wanted to be written. Uh, and before that, I had had sort of a brilliant young career, uh, and I had written always hoping to be considered a little smarty. Uh, and so what happened was for the first time, I was trying to be of service, uh, and I, I had a goal of communicating clearly the tools that were working for me. Uh, and that goal became the artist's way. Does that answer your question? Yes. And I have up um, in that in the room that I used to write in that now is in fact um, my youngest daughter's bedroom uh, 
a great creator. You take, uh, I'll take care of the quantity. You take care of the quality. I, you know, I have bear. What are you doing? Don't do that. That's weird. I've got my dog in here. He's doing like doing some something very unusual that created a, a sort of a percussion sound effect that I couldn't even begin to understand how a dog could make it. It was just, as if he had a drum kit down there. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, this idea of allowing you know a higher power or God or whatever you want to call it to be in charge of what formerly would have been regarded as your own creativity it seems to me to be a very mystical one is it your assertion that mysticism is a key component of creativity and always has been yes um i think creative people are mystics i think we use a um a a source of inspiration that we may not identify as a higher power we may call it the muse we may call it the universe, we may call it the Tao. Uh, and when we start to work on our creativity, what happens is that we start to listen. Uh, and listening is, of course, a primary part of mysticism. Uh, mystics listen, uh, and then they are obedient. Uh, and I, I think that creative people throughout history uh, have said things like straight away the ideas came to me straight from God was Brahms uh, and people would talk about inspiration as coming from a higher source yeah and as the word inspiration you know put breath into is a very interesting word in itself I suppose it's interesting to here at a time when the process of creativity and the celebration of artists is so commodified the idea of this humility and devotion at its core which you know i suppose even in the renaissance and certainly prior to it would have been understood that creativity is an act of devotion is an act of service it sounds uh, very it sounds to me unusual because when i you know the way that we would celebrate artists and writers and creative people is very much about the kind of deification of the deification of the individual rather than kind of looking at individuals as a conduit as a portal as a platform as a servant i wonder how you had the confidence to be so bold about an assertion that's at odds with our time of individualism, rationalism, and materialism? Well, I think it comes back to a motive that I had of helping people. Uh, and what happened was I met a man who was a blocked writer, and I fell in love with him. Uh, <clears throat> and I said to him, would you like to take a creativity class and unblock your writer. Uh, and he said, I travel all the time on business. Where's the book? And I, I said, I am the book. <laughs> and he said, well, it ought to be a book. It could help a lot of people. Uh, so I would sit down every week and think, what does that bastard need to know? Uh, and I would write at him, uh, and writing to him and at him sort of 
cleared up my motivation. Uh, and I felt, um, when I got sober, uh, I got sober in California. Uh, and they didn't mince words. They said, if you want to stay sober, uh, you, you need to find a higher power. Uh, and I said, you don't understand. I have 17 years of Catholic education. That's the grease slide to atheism. <laughs> and they said, well, you must believe in something. And I thought about it, and I came back to them, and I said, I believe in a line from Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, that creative energy. Uh, and I'm going to ask that creative energy to help me. So, go ahead. Well, it's, it's, it's curious to me that from such a, that your book is so like, a, you know, I know you've written like many, many things and I'm focusing on the artist's way just because it's had such a personal impact on me and a lot of people I know. But like that, that, that the idea of uh, embracing the divine and the mystical is one thing, but like the of the, the morning page, it, there's so much technique in there. There's so much practice in the book. How did you come up with the idea of the morning? Can you explain to people that may not know who are listening to this podcast what the morning pages are? And, and also for me, how you came up with that? Okay, two points. Uh, morning pages are three pages of longhand morning writing that you do first thing when you wake up. You try and catch yourself before your ego is awake. Uh, and you get to the page and you say, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I want more of. This is what I want less of. And you are, in effect, sending a telegram to the universe of your exact position. Uh, and you don't show the pages to anyone. They're completely private. Uh, and they are a place where you can be feeling free to vent, uh, to be as positive as you are and as negative as you are. Uh, and what happens with morning pages is that because there's no wrong way to do them, you move past your critic. Uh, and your your critic wakes up at the same time you do and starts saying, oh, dear, you're boring. And you say to your critic, thank you for sharing. And you keep right on writing. And this becomes a portable skill. Uh, it becomes something that when you have to step on stage and your critic says, <clears throat> you say to it, thank you for sharing and you step on stage. Uh, and the way that Morning Pages came to me was that I was a Hollywood screenwriter uh, and I had a, a movie uh, that I wrote uh, first be received, the script was received as this is brilliant, and then I couldn't get them on the phone again. So I was heartbroken. I felt like it was it was like having a creative miscarriage uh, to to write a movie and then have it be shelved without being shot. Uh, and so I ran away to New Mexico, where I live now, uh, and I lived in a little adobe house at the end of a dirt road 
uh, and I stared out at Taos Mountain, uh, and I was frustrated and at a loss, and I started writing three pages a day, and I would do three pages before my little daughter woke up and came out and needed attention. Uh, and the, um, the, the three pages led me into a novel, and I thought, my God, these pages work. And I took them back to New York and started teaching, uh, and I taught the principles I was learning for 10 years before I wrote The Artist's Way. Oh, wow. Wow, so you had mastered it and lived it, and like you said to this boyfriend or this man that you were in love with who inspired you, you that you are the book. You became the teaching before you tried to convey it. I, I'm minded of the Eric Fromm book, uh, or at least uh, idea, uh, of prophets and priests, that priests uh, preach the word and the prophet is the word made flesh, is the embodiment of the word and even though what you're doing is uh, specifically applicable to creativity which so which you even though you, as you said it has to be about service and i'm thinking about how that applies in my own life is that i i, I continually vacillate between i'm doing this for service of god to i'm doing this so that people like me and like you said earlier that like you wanted people to think that you were a little smarty i still have that in me i still have part of me that's looking for approval and uh, when you talk about that mastery of the critic there Julia of being able to go uh, 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 you know like I I you know I still sometimes yield to that I still it becomes me and I become it I lose my transcendence I lose that witness perspective how 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 have you managed to have this sustained relationship with a higher form of yourself well, I've been I I've been sober forty two years, and I've been writing morning pages, uh, probably thirty eight years, uh, and I do them faithfully. Uh, and I think if you look at any spiritual tradition, you'll you'll see that there is a discipline inherent to it. Uh, and uh, you go to a monastery and the bells ring at a certain time and certain prayers are said. Uh, and so I show up at the page and write. Uh, and then there's a second tool, which is difficult to practice during the pandemic, which is called an artist's date, which is when you take an expedition to do something festive that entertains and interests you. Uh, and an artist's date is something uh, that fills the well. I think when we talk about creativity, um, we're, we're talking about drawing images from an inner well. Uh, and sometimes when we are doing brilliantly, the well will dry up. Uh, and people will say, Julia, I was, I was doing so well, what happened? And the answer is that I was fishing my, my well without replenishing the stock of fish. So I think uh, going, I, are you allowed to go for walks during this pandemic? I am privileged to live in quite a remote area. So yes, 
we're the the man what's mandated is we're allowed one piece of outside exercise a day um so you know i'm allowed to go for a run with my dog well i think what happens when you are able to to do the one piece of exercise a day is that it's as if you have built a um, radio kit and with morning pages you're sending uh, and with artist dates and walks you're receiving you're hearing intuition you're having a sense of a benevolent something that's in touch with you and that's a very long answer to a short question well no 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 it's the perfect answer so you um like you wouldn't listen to music or podcasts if you were on a walk or run because you want to be in sort of reflection and be able to receive is that right that's right uh, and i think what happens uh if you listen to music particularly music with words uh you find yourself transported to the consciousness of the artist who created it. And what we're trying to do is get you to fall in love with yourself uh, and to be in touch with your own consciousness. Uh, and so I think one way you do it is by morning pages where you are emptying. Uh, and I think, uh, I sometimes think, oh my Lord, I do it wrong uh, about meditation. Because for years I have said morning pages are an active form of meditation. Uh, and it's difficult for Westerners to sit quiet for 20 minutes and do nothing. So I say sit quiet for 20 minutes and do something. Uh, and they move you uh, in ways that a med conventional meditation process doesn't. Uh, if you have a problem and you take it into conventional meditation, you meditate and the problem goes away. You realize it's trivial compared to the vast scheme of things. When you do morning pages, you have a problem. And at the end of morning pages, you hear, you goddamn well better do something about this. So they move you into action uh, and that's what the book is about moving you into action on your creativity it's amazing to reflect that every single masterpiece as well as some less notable pieces of work has passed through the consciousness and process of an individual individualized creator but I, I think, you know, with, say, an obvious example like the Beatles, that all of that, where was that stuff? <laughs> you know, where were all those albums and those songs before they came through McCartney and Lennon and Harrison? Where is that stuff? And and given the nature of infinity and eternity, there is countless, you know, there is limitless Beatles albums yet to be written and realised, the Shakespeare's and Joyce's untouched, Sylvia Plath's unpenned. It's sort of uh, very inspiring to consider that it's possible to become an interface for genius, that genius is perhaps the process of getting out of the way in some sense. Yes, I think so. And sometimes people say to me, oh, Julia, 
aren't you afraid you're unblocking a lot of bad art? <laughs> and I say, well, actually, I've had the opposite experience. Many times the people that have been blocked are more brilliant than the people we celebrate. So it's, uh, it's not a question of unblocking bad art. It's a question of, oh, my God, why didn't they know their genius? Oh, my God. That's really exciting and heartening. When we, now we're in this um, extraordinary time. You've already sort of brilliantly metabolized and I would say, you know, sort of created so much original content. But like it comes in, in from your description, at least from a place of spiritual awakening and spiritual journeying. Uh, but it specifically applied to creativity. How do you consider that that the, these ideas can be applied now that we find ourselves in a very particular moment, in a moment of you know isolation, a moment of anxiety and fear? How do you think that this work and the principles of recovery and the principles of the artist's way and your other work apply in this very unique time? Well, I think actually uh, it's a wonderful window for creativity. Uh, many of us are sort of trapped indoors. We're restless. Uh, we're, we're feeling claustrophobic. Uh, and we're feeling that events are beyond our control. Uh, and what we do have control over is taking the pen to the page uh, and writing three pages of how we feel and what we care about. Uh, and I think uh, there are many tools in the book of the artist's way beyond morning pages, although that's the bedrock tool. Uh, and uh, I think as you do those exercises, uh, I'm, I'm thinking now particularly of one which is numbering from one to 25 and listing 25 things that you love. Uh, and you can't actually go on an artist's date right now, but you can recall the things that you loved. Uh, and as you recall the things that you loved, you, you gain confidence uh, and you gain security and you gain enthusiasm uh, and you gain, hopefully, a little bit of frivolity. <laughs> um, and right now we desperately need frivolity there's got to be some frivolity in this yes because we can't get too dour and serious yes I want to contribute to this frivolity is it I've often been told that frivolity and playfulness are the very things that I need to stop I looked at um, when I was older I looked at a school report that I had that was like you know Russell's got sort of stupid hair. He never stops talking and mucking around. He's never going to get anywhere in life if he continues. Like, and I, like looking at the report, it was like it was the blueprint for the things that would extract me from poverty, as a matter of fact. So, and frivolity actually has been a, a key component of that, Julia. Um, There's another so tool I want to mention quickly, which is something called counting coup. Uh, and again, I would number from 1 to 25 
and then list 25 things you're proud of. Uh, and they may not be things that anybody else would be proud of. Uh, I was proud of beating up the sixth grade bully who was beating up the girls. So that goes on my counting coup list. Uh, and when you have a list of 25 things that you've done that you're proud of, uh, it makes it seem possible. Uh, when you do your morning pages, what happens is they'll say something like, wouldn't it be fun to write a musical about Merlin? And you would think, well, yes, if I were musical. <laughs> and then they'll bring it up again and you'll say, I couldn't do that. And then they'll bring it up again and you'll say, well, maybe I could try. <laughs> uh, and so what they do is they teach you to be an expanded self. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. And I'm beginning to realize more and more that the the way that addiction and the 12 steps functions as a beautiful metaphor for detaching and letting go of who you believe yourself to be the artist's way and the symbol of the artist and creator is a beautiful emblem for anybody whether you consider yourself to be an artist or creator or not to fall in love with yourself as you say and rediscover a kind of personal awakening i like that bit where you say um like you know what things would you do if you didn't care what other people think of you like you know, dye your hair do this learn how to skateboard and stuff like that are these still principles that you practice are you still living that way it seems to me just from meeting you briefly that you are well when i teach uh, i often ask how many people here feel they have an issue with perfectionism. Mm. The hands go shooting up, uh, and then I say, okay, number from one to 10. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. Uh, and you discover, uh, maybe if you didn't have to do it perfectly, you'd sing. Yeah. I've tyrannized myself out of so many things like because of fear and because of the the yoke of perfectionism like you know playing football I've told myself like football dancing so many things that I think oh you're you're not allowed to do that you're not good enough and because I've been you know fortunate to live a life in which there have been some there's been some success it, I've almost used that to bolster the idea that I'm not allowed to do certain other things. You know, I only want to do things if I'm good at them. I'm only going to do things if I'm approved of for doing them. And it's limiting. Very limiting. And I think uh, this is where we take a look at our belief system uh, and we discover that we want our initial creativity to measure up to the work of masters. So uh, when I was teaching screenwriting, I said, let's look at some early movies by movie-making greats. Uh, and so uh, I had them send me their early films. And when you looked at the early films of, say, George Lucas, uh, you would think, oh, George. <laughs> Why not try accounting? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out he could have later used. <laughs> but very often we judge our 
embryonic work against the masterwork of, of great artists. Uh, and I think people sometimes say uh, that artists are a fearless tribe, a small, elite, fearless tribe. Uh, and I believe that we are all creative uh, and that the trick is learning to create despite our fear. Uh, so you sort of step beyond your fear. Oh my God. You know that W.B. Yeats quote, like each artist must create their own religion. Of course you do. And like um, you've literally done that. You've literally created a sort of a, a practice, a, dis a disciplinary practice to bring about art. I'm interested, um, Julia, in how you applied these principles to parenting. Can you explain that? I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old and my wife has just um, written a book, uh, The Joy Journal, on creative, um, on creative play and creative parenting. She was very influenced by you. Uh, how, how, did you, how do you repurpose your work for adult creativity into parenting? Well, I wrote an entire book called The Artist's Way for Parents. Uh, and what it does is explain that as we create, our children mimic us. Uh, and so uh, there are many tools in the book that talk about things like, don't be afraid of mess. Allow yourself to make a mess. Mm. Allow mm. your children to make a mess. Uh, sometimes we want to be creative, but we want it within very narrow confines, uh, not not messy. Uh, and uh, so I had uh, a daughter, uh, I have a daughter, uh, and uh, she grew up watching me do morning pages. Uh, and when she turned 17, she came to a creativity camp that I was teaching. Uh, and she talked to the people at the camp and realized, oh, I'm going to do morning pages. So my daughter now does morning pages uh, and she mimics, uh, she goes, does morning pages, does artist dates, goes for walks and uses the tools that she saw me using. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think again, frivolity, uh, is a wonderful thing to pass on to our children. As you have uh, practiced these principles across your life, have you found that uh, that, that frivolity has become uh, natural and effortless, as I suppose the word frivolity already Im implies? Or, or, or do you still, where are you challenged, Julia? What things do you find difficult still? Do you become frustrated? Are you condemning of your own work? Are you, do, do you find your relationships challenging? Where do you come up against, uh, where do you come against, up against obstacles and challenges? Well, when I write, I have to deal with my critic. Uh, and I've been dealing with the critic in morning pages and saying, thank you for sharing. But as I'm writing a, a book, uh, what happens is the critic gets sharper. Uh, and I call my critic Nigel. 
<laughs> Nigel is a gay British interior decorator. <laughs> Nothing that I ever do is good enough for Nigel. <laughs> uh, so uh, I recently wrote this book, and Nigel kept saying, Oh, Julia, you're repeating yourself. And oh, Julia, you're boring. And oh, Julia, just really scary negatives. Uh, and so I turned the book into my editor and I said, well, here's the book, but I'm not sure it's any good. Uh -huh. And he said, I think you've been listening to Nigel. So I do an exercise when I teach, which is that I have people describe their critic. So I've described Nigel, and then I have them describe a character that I call Rolf. And Rolf is like something out of Game of Thrones. Rolf is uh, powerful uh, and Rolf confronts Nigel. So I, I say, what does your Nigel say? And then what would your Rolf like to say to your Nigel? Uh, and so I give Rolf a chance to be big and strong. Uh, and um, I think uh, another thing we should probably talk about uh, is the value of what I call believing mirrors. Yeah, please. And a believing mirror is somebody who sees you at your biggest, strongest, most possibly powerful. Uh, and I think it's important for us to go through life collecting believing mirrors. People who don't say to us, oh, Russell, that's just your ego. We say, Russell, that's fantastic. Do, do more. So I think uh, I have a collection of believing mirrors. Uh, one I would like to mention, she's in London right now in hiding from Paris. Uh, her name is Sonia Choquette. Uh, and Sonia is a fourth generation psychic. Uh, and she has been valuable to me. I will say to her, I'm worried about the book, and she'll say, Julia, I see the book being published. Uh, and so I've come to trust my believing mirrors. When you were uh, a using addict and alcoholic, what kind of uh, relationships did you have then, and how do they pose with these uh, positive and affirming relationships that you're speaking of now? And have you had much uh, issues with, like, codependency, for example? Well, I think that morning pages are a radical codependency withdrawal. Uh, and a lot of times when we talk about an addiction, we talk about having something removed from us. We're in withdrawal from the drug that we were addicted to or from the person that we were addicted to. Uh, and I think it's important with morning pages to think of withdrawal a little bit differently. And that is that we are withdrawing our energy that we have misspent on codependent relationships. 
we're withdrawing our energies back into our own core, uh, where we are able to use them on our own behalf. Uh, and I think, um, I think that when we talk about addiction uh, and creativity, we're talking about anything that gets in the way of your being creative. So if you have a sex and love addiction, you may find yourself saying, oh, I wonder if he loves me, <laughs> instead of saying, this is how that short story should end. So um, I think that addiction is well combated by the Artist's Way Toolkit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know your story when I was doing it and it became sort of evident throughout it that there was just the the, the two things were uh, analogous. But you have you found that as you have lived this life, you know, I think about my own recovery. I'm 17 years clean and sober from drugs and alcohol. I work a program as best I can around relationships and I'm married and so obviously around uh, sex and also pornography and I have to be mindful about the way that I eat food. My addiction will manifest itself anywhere and I was thinking about what's blocking my creativity now and it's sometimes just inertia apathy there's a few things i'm meant to be writing i'm meant to be right you know i've got a script that i'm supposed to be writing for hbo i've got an audible book about god that i'm supposed to be writing and like i'm still like when i was a kid i like wait until until it's like oh shit people need this now i'm gonna get in trouble you know until i sort of kick off so it's for me it's not like at the moment it's not like but you know i'm not hanging around in bars or you know i'm not being actively negative it's more of a sort of an apathy or laziness well laziness is just another word for fear oh and i think uh, there's a, a very good tool in the back of the artist's way called blasting through blocks uh and Blasting through blocks is the tool that you use when you find yourself stalling. Uh, and it, you list out all of your angers, however irrational they are, and all of your fears connected to the project. So um, you're writing a book uh, and you're stalled and you say, I'm afraid the book won't be any good. I'm afraid the book will be good and nobody will know it. I'm a, and you, you list out your resentments, your angers, your fears. Uh, and then I would do what I would call calling up one of my believing mirrors and saying, here's the laundry list that's blocking me from going forward on this project. Uh, and they don't have to fix it. They just have to listen. Uh, and when you do blasting through blocks, it moves you forward. Wow. Wow. So it's, it's a very powerful tool. Yeah. So it steps like in a t conventional 12 step way. It's a step four and five. It's a fearless and thorough inventory 
of the situation but as as it pertains particularly to uh, one project or one you know idea and then sharing it with someone that you know that's that can hold it that can handle it that's further along the path if it was a if it was conventional 12 steps it would be a sort of a mentor of some kind so that's so you, that even that ha- has that sort of kind of application. Do you ever think that it that it would benefit, like that you could do it so that it's literally four columns, you know, like a more, or, you know, like in very traditional twelve step literature, you know, co- column one I resent, column two because column three it affects my pride, self esteem, personal relations, sexual relations, ambitions, security, finances, and then the the fourth column the mistakes. Do you think it could? withstand that level of rigor and would it be helpful or do you think it's absolutely um as it as it is as a block blast it works because hearing you say i think oh yeah yeah that would work for me yes it does work and i don't think you need to make it complicated into the four columns i think you can do it just as simple lists of fears and angers yeah, and then share it with, and it needn't necessarily, but yeah, it can just be someone that you know that believes in you and cares about you so that you're engaging in that aspect of yourself. Right. What relationship were you having with your creativity specifically prior to these undertakings? Were you, were you, were you writing things and loathing yourself? Were you, like, were you self-damning and self-condemning? Because what it seems like to me is that, you know, much like you're saying with George Lucas, if you look at an early George Lucas film, you might find it sort of laborious and sort of cerebral. You know, for me, it seems like as the person that creates the artist way, how can you ever not be the person that creates the artist way? I find it hard when I talk to people that are, you know, sort of more advanced than I am. I'm always trying to find the bit in them that I recognize, which is usually the flaws and the frailty and the fallibility. And sometimes I find that very difficult to unearth. I find it difficult to think of you as being a person that's not in touch with creativity in a very healthy and pure way. Well, I think before I got sober, I kept trying to be brilliant. So, you know, if I was writing an article for a newspaper, I would write a lead and then I would think, oh no, and I would cross it out and I would write another lead uh, and I tormented myself around my creativity uh, and I didn't write freely. Uh, And I, I, this is where my codependency came into play. Uh, I was... uh, able to write freely if I were writing for someone else. So it was sort of a precursor of the artist's way. Uh, and uh, so I, I helped out on movies, for example, uh, just by saying, oh, how can I make this better? Uh, and setting my ego aside uh, and I think um, I think that I, I well I've written many things I've written forty books that's just about a book a year of my sobriety uh, and uh, I've written plays musicals poetry uh, and I I think uh, 
that one of the things that I did was put my music and my poetry up on my website for people to get it for free. So um, I'm not so afraid anymore of being judged. Uh, and uh, I, I think that comes from practicing the tools, frankly. This is what I, I aspire to, is to reach a point where I can undertake what I do simply for service without fear and without a continual requirement for external validation. Do you continue to work on, if, you, if I may ask, your recovery in a conventional way by spending time with other people with addiction issues or working, for example, the 12 steps. Is that still part of your life, Julia? Yes. Wow. Very much so. Uh, and the things that I was taught at the beginning, uh, I was lucky to have uh, sober writer friends, uh, and they taught me to put a little sign up by my desk, okay, God, you take care of the quality <laughs> I'll take care of the quantity. Uh, and these are still tools that I use. Uh, and um, I, I find that when I go back to basics, which I said at the beginning about being graphic and grateful, uh, and if I find myself saying, Wow, when I was drinking and using, I lived in a rented house with cigarette burns in the furniture. Uh, and I had two friends. One was a heroin addict and the other was a hooker. Uh, and now I have many friends uh, and I own my own house and there are no cigarette burns. Wow. Oh, thank you, Julia, for making time for me at the top of that mountain with that mysterious man in the background, still not entirely and fully explained. I'm still not completely convinced that you're not running some kind of commune up there under the auspices of creativity, a loyal crew of disciples and devotees about you. I really have found it a great privilege to speak with you and to um, have the treasure of your direct attention and counsel. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I don't collect devotees. <laughs> when I teach, I encourage people to go do other things. Like if you work the artist's way, now write your own book. Now take a pottery class. Now take an improv class. Uh, and... I find uh, that when I go back years later uh, and talk to people who have worked the artist's way, it has sort of worked its magic. Uh, and it's like visiting a garden. You know, when I go to teach, I plant the seeds. Uh, and then when I circle back and check later, the garden is blooming. Oh. Well, that's so beautiful. Thank you for um, you, thank you for uh, the beautiful way in which you convey and embody these beautiful principles that have um, been really, really helpful to me. Really, really have changed my 
pro creative process and it's made me realize that what i need to do is return to doing morning pages as when it's as safe to do so return to artist dates and to get on and do this uh block blaster so that I can fulfill some of uh, my writing commitments, which frankly, while I'm not going to be doing any acting or live performance, become of increasing importance. So thank you, Julia Cameron. You're very welcome, Russell. Oh, my God, you're so charming. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Julia Cameron. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. Sign up for my mailing list at russellbrand.com. In the meantime, why don't you have a listen back to Lena Dunham and Mae Martin if you want to listen to some humorous, insightful and intelligent people. And keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.